coffee. For some, it is deserving of its own essential food group. But is coffee more than just a way to achieve functioning human capacity first thing in the morning? You may have seen media headlines in the past warning about health risks of coffee. But now that the science has matured, coffee turns out to be one of the most surprisingly positive health stories of recent years. Forget about the latest superfood trend, coffee is where it's at. In this podcast, I'll look closer at those health benefits of coffee and give you the validation you've been seeking to justify your caffeine habit. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So on with today's show. Do you hear that sound? It's one familiar to coffee lovers the world over. Nothing says happiness better than a bustling coffee shop with a barista hard at work plying their trade. Coffee, brew, black gold or goat juice, whatever you call it, coffee is the world's second most popular beverage after tea. It has been estimated that over 2.2 billion cups of coffee are drunk each and every day. So just what's in your daily brew? Coffee contains a number of useful nutrients, including riboflavin, niacin, magnesium, potassium, and various antioxidants, as well as a bunch of other natural plant chemicals. In fact, one estimate has found that the typical Western diet provides more antioxidants from coffee than it does from fruits and vegetables combined. Hmm, maybe time to replace the odd cup of coffee with a smoothie, perhaps. And then, of course, there's the caffeine. Caffeine is the most consumed psychoactive substance in the world, and I'm talking both legal and illegal substances here. Soft drinks, tea, and chocolate all contain caffeine, but coffee is the biggest source. Caffeine is a stimulant. In your brain, it blocks the function of an inhibitory neurotransmitter called adenosine. By blocking adenosine, caffeine increases activity in your brain and releases other neurotransmitters like norepinephrine and dopamine. This reduces tiredness and makes you feel more alert. That all means that caffeine can lead to a short-term boost in brain function, improving mood, reaction time, vigilance, and general cognitive function. But any regular coffee drinker knows this already. Coffee has been around for a long time, 
and has often been maligned for many health ills, from stunting your growth to causing heart disease. But recent research shows that it may actually have many health benefits. Coffee is also a good example of how conflicting nutrition research gives mixed messages to the public. One day coffee is reported as being good for us, and the next day it is harmful. All the while, people continue to switch off to such conflicting reports and keep on enjoying their favorite coffee beverage of choice as part of their regular morning routine. Fortunately though, now that research has really matured, we're in a good position to see how the health ledger stacks up for coffee. The potential health benefits of coffee have been outlined in a major scientific review published in 2016, which I'll link to in the show notes. The review looked at over 1,200 individual studies where coffee was studied in regards to any positive or negative health effect. The big ones included cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, liver disease, neurological disorders, and longevity, and each was picked apart to see what the research said about coffee. And after all that analyzing and synthesizing, what was the conclusion? Well, the health benefits of moderate coffee consumption clearly outweighed the risk in almost all of the health outcomes looked at. Now, a definition of moderate here was considered three to four cups of coffee a day. That is a definition of moderate that agrees with me a lot. Going a bit deeper into the diseases looked at in the review, so for type 2 diabetes, it has been seen that coffee drinkers may have up to a two-thirds reduced risk of developing this condition. In fact, one review of 18 studies involving almost half a million people found that for each daily cup of coffee, it was linked with a 7% lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And that was after making allowances for other lifestyle habits that regular coffee drinkers have that non-drinkers did not. Coffee also appears linked to reduced risk of some cancers. Coffee decreases the risk of liver and endometrial cancer, with the level set at probable by the World Cancer Research Fund, which is the largest not-for-profit cancer organization in the world. There is also some suggestive evidence that coffee can lower the risk of cancer of the mouth, pharynx, and larynx, as well as even skin cancer, and no concerns have been made about coffee raising the risk of any cancer. Coffee also is linked to longevity, with regular drinkers living longer, although it is hard to put an exact number of years on it. Looking at particular causes of death, it seems coffee drinkers are less likely to die from infections, injuries, accidents, respiratory diseases, diabetes, stroke, and heart disease. And decaf coffee appears to have favorable benefits too, so it's likely not all to do with caffeine, but a combination of all the antioxidants and other natural chemicals found in coffee, working together that gives its health benefit. Then we have neurological diseases, where the news is really looking promising. 
To start with, coffee drinkers are known to have up to a 60% lower risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And people who drink coffee may also be less likely to experience depression and conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. So there seems a common link here with coffee having a favorable benefit on the neurologic system. As an aside, extending the work done, finding coffee is linked to reducing the risk of Parkinson's disease, one small clinical trial has found that people with Parkinson's disease, given a daily dose of caffeine, gained improvements in their movement symptoms. Because of how caffeine works in the body, scientists have thought that it could have a potential benefit in controlling some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, such as daytime lethargy and drowsiness, as well as muscle effects of poor coordination, muscle soreness and shakiness. In fact, researchers from McGill University gave people with Parkinson's disease a placebo pill or 100 milligrams of caffeine, equivalent to a strong cup of coffee. And they took this twice a day for three weeks and then increased the dosage of caffeine to 200 milligrams for the next three weeks. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. The big improvement seen in the caffeine group was in motor symptoms, with a noticeable improvement in speed of movement and less muscle stiffness. This first study, looking at caffeine dosing and Parkinson's disease, has provided some really interesting results, which will fuel future research. If validated in larger clinical trials, then caffeine, or the coffee it is found in, could become a cheap and very safe treatment for some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So moving out of the world of health and into that of sport and human performance, coffee has a special place thanks to its caffeine content. Caffeine is one of the very few sports supplements that have quality scientific evidence to support a real-world sports performance benefit. There is good evidence that caffeine enhances endurance and provides a small but worthwhile enhancement in performance over a range of exercise protocols, from short-duration, high-intensity events up to endurance events. In fact, one estimate equates its benefit in increasing time to exhaustion by about 3%. In the world of elite sport, that is a huge benefit. Caffeine works in sport because it acts as a neuromuscular stimulant, where it can change perception of effort, meaning it is possible to work at a higher rate for longer. It can also alter neurotransmitter function and increase in motor unit recruitment and muscle contractility, so more power is available by the athlete. Initially, it was thought that caffeine worked because it increased fat oxidation and could spare glycogen, but These effects are not universal and likely not important in overall performance effects. And any concerns about caffeine's effect on hydration are very much overstated, as regular coffee and caffeine consumers do habituate to caffeine over time, and any diuretic effect is normally offset by the fluid that it is consumed with. Caffeine is effective at quite low dosages in sport, around 3 milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. So to put that in context, for a 70 kilogram athlete, that is the equivalent of about 2 cups of coffee 
Caffeine is rapidly absorbed by most people with peak blood caffeine at around 45 to 90 minutes following ingestion. So it is taken on shortly before an event. Sports Dietitians Australia have a great fact sheet on caffeine, as well as a table with the caffeine content of a whole range of foods and beverages. And no surprise that coffee comes out on top of this list. And I'll link to this fact sheet in the show notes. Not everybody responds the same to caffeine though, and there is some evidence that this could be because of genetics, where the presence or absence of mutations in a specific gene called CYP1A2, which is part of your liver detoxification system, could mean a person is either a rapid or slow metabolizer of caffeine. But the only way to find this out is to get a genetic test done. But it's not all good news when it comes to coffee, so I do need to talk about some of the downsides and health risks. Drinking too much caffeine can lead to giddiness, anxiety, heart palpitations, and even exacerbate panic attacks. So if you are sensitive to caffeine and tend to become overstimulated, you may want to avoid coffee altogether. Then there is the insomnia. So cutting back on coffee, especially after 2pm, is an important part of good sleep hygiene. If you suspect, it could be keeping you up at night. Caffeine can also have a blood pressure raising effect and this spike seems to be stronger in people prone to high blood pressure or who don't normally drink a lot of coffee. But these are are acute effects wear off after about four hours. What's less clear is caffeine's long-term effects on blood pressure. The overall long-term effects are inconclusive But if you do have high blood pressure, it would be best to not overindulge your caffeine habit. And for women who are pregnant, please take special note with a recent scientific review of many studies finding a 37% higher risk of miscarriage in women who consume more than 300 milligrams of caffeine a day. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. Now, a link between caffeine and the risk of miscarriage has been known for some time, which is why Food Standards Australia New Zealand advise that for pregnant and breastfeeding women, daily caffeine consumption should not exceed 200 milligrams. This is in contrast for advice for non-pregnant adults, where 400 milligrams per day is considered unlikely to cause any harm. This advice is mirrored by similar European and United States regulatory bodies that advise that during pregnancy, no more than 200 milligrams of caffeine, that's about two cups of coffee, should be drunk each day. So for regular coffee drinkers, there is likely little to be concerned about when seeing reports of a single research study indicating coffee is not so good for health. The weight of evidence points to coffee being a healthy habit for adults, with the overall weight of science saying it will be doing your health more good than harm. It's not a reason to start drinking coffee if you're not partial to it, but for everybody else, keep calm, keep caffeinated, and carry on. And to finish up, I'd like to address a question that came through sparked by my previous episode on intermittent fasting. It came from Amanda, who put a question 
into her Apple podcast review. So thank you, Amanda, for the positive review. She asked if being an active adult who was training for a triathlon, who was thinking of trying intermittent fasting for the potential metabolic benefits, if it could impact her training. And great question. So my thoughts on this. Now, from a research perspective, there is little out there, unsurprisingly, on intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating in athletic training. And on the surface, some of the principles of intermittent fasting do seem to go against the core sports nutrition concepts of refueling and spreading food intake, especially protein, over the day. But in fact, there could be some benefits from training low at times, where carbohydrate especially is limited, to promote favorable fat adaptations. Now, this is offset by training high for high-quality training sessions and race day where peak performance is needed and where you would revert back to standard feeding regimens, which would include carbohydrates. So intermittent fasting could fit within this type of protocol if it was periodized. In fact, a 2019 review on this very topic of intermittent fasting and athletic performance, which I'll link to in the show notes, concluded that there is probably no great benefit to athletic performance while fasting. But everyone's mileage is different here, and your own performance would be the best guide. This is separate though to using intermittent fasting for weight loss to help improve the power to weight ratio in a sport where a performance benefit would be likely. But intermittent fasting is just one in a long line of ways to achieve weight loss. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition.